Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. If you're tuning in to this podcast, you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Many of you listening in today might be hearing the term nature-based solutions for sustainable investing and wondering what that term means or thinking, I'm a finance person, not a scientist. In today's episode, you're going to learn how bringing science into your investment strategies will help you take your business to the next level. Now I'm going to introduce our panel of experts. First is Gloria Mirioni. And I'm excited to have Gloria return for episode two in the Sustainable Finance Podcast Acre Sponsorship Series. She is the Executive Director and Head of Sustainable Finance and Impact Investing for Acre Americas. Gloria and I are joined today by two experts in nature-based solutions that address the impacts of climate change around the world, like floods, wildfires, and droughts. Charlotte Kaiser is head of impact finance at BTG Pactual Timberland Investment Group. And Chris Larson is the chief investment officer at Alder Point Capital Management. Hello, Gloria, Charlotte, and Chris, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having us. Glad you could join us today. And we're going to jump right into the whole series of questions that we have to focus on today. And Charlotte, I'm going to ask you to respond to this first question. And the other, and Gloria and, and Chris, please jump in if you have something to add to what Charlotte says. Please tell our podcast followers why nature-based solutions are so important for addressing climate change issues like rising global temperatures and the concentration of carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions in the Earth's atmosphere and oceans? Such a good question, Paul. And maybe I'll start with just a basic definition of nature-based solutions. These are carbon sequestration, uh, carbon removal solutions that use natural ecosystems uh, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. You can think of forest restoration, uh, protection of mangroves, uh, soil carbon projects using regenerative agriculture techniques. These are all examples of nature-based solutions. And there are two big reasons why they're such an important part of our climate strategy going forward. The first is they can really contribute to solving the climate crisis. Science uh, shows that about a third of the carbon removals that are required to stick to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, global warming can be delivered by these ecosystems. Uh, and both Chris and I are working on strategies that we think can demonstrate that. Second, we're also facing another crisis alongside the cr climate crisis, which is the biodiversity crisis. We're in the middle of the sixth extinction event in the history of our planet. Fully a third of all aquatic species face extinction, and 
vertebrate, vertebrate populations globally have declined almost two-thirds in the last 50 years. There is a serious gap in finance for biodiversity protection, and nature-based solutions can support biodiversity conservation while also solving the climate crisis. Okay. Chris, anything you wanted to add? I thought that was a very good definition. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to the next question. And Chris, I'm going to ask you to go first on this one. What does a typical nature-based solution project look like? And are there different models being used based on the best business structure for specific issues? Great question. So yeah, fundamentally, a, a nature-based solution investment, as distinct from a government action or philanthropic action, represents a source of private capital uh, investing in a project or an asset that is generating these outcomes, whether it's carbon sequestration, biodiversity benefits, water quality benefits, flood control benefits, etc. Uh, and really, over the past 10 years, this space has kind of seen a rapid evolution in terms of sophistication. There are probably two primary ways to invest in nature-based solutions uh, currently. The first really is to is kind of a real assets approach, owning the property that is delivering the ecosystem service, owning the forest that is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, owning uh, the riparian habitat that's providing clean water filtration into a river system, those sorts of things. Um, owning property is capital intensive, property is expensive, it's, uh, you need large scale assets to deliver large scale nature-based solutions benefits. Um, but it's also the lowest risk way of participating in these markets. If you control the asset, you uh, <clears throat> have other sources of, of income potentially from commodity or crop or forestry production. You have the downside protection of owning that asset, which might have alternate uses, or it might have even kind of more complementary cash flows from unrelated activities like recreational uses or housing or other uses of that sort. So that's kind of one model is own the property that is generating that service, sell that service to parties that are seeking uh, to invest in, and receive the benefit of those services. The second approach is to own the project. So instead of owning the property, contract with the property owner and sort of receive the benefits, secure what you want out of that property without direct ownership of it. Um, this is a particularly effective way of working in situations where maybe the property is owned by the government. Maybe it's a forestry concession in a country where private property of you know, private ownership of natural resources is not as widespread of a phenomenon, which is the case in a lot large parts of the world, particularly in the tropics. And so in a project situation uh, structure, you have lower capital intensity because you're not owning thousands and thousands of hectares of land, um, but you really are relying more on contract terms and contract enforceability and have probably less security potentially in that project. And it, as a reminder, these nature-based solutions, in order for them to be effective, have to have some degree of permanence. And so setting up contracts, um, particularly in countries where the rule of law is in flux, that are supposed to last for many decades, is as introduces risk to these projects. And so typically project investors will seek a higher rate of return than the real asset owners under those projects. So those are kind of the two main models that I have seen in my investing career. I'd say that a couple of other areas that, that you know, ways that, that people can play in these markets are, third one would be to sort of create a purchase facility. So if I am a buyer of nature-based solutions, I can pre-order, so to speak, uh, solutions to stimulate market activity. So this is something we've seen large corporates in the United States and Europe do, uh, where they say, okay, I'm going to purchase high quality nature-based solutions offsets, or I'm gonna purchase 
advanced forms of carbon removals like direct air capture. And then that allows companies that are pioneering those approaches to obtain financing and equity investments and so forth. Um, a fourth approach is to be a lender against either the real asset or the project. So credit investments in this space um, have uh, you know, been a, a strategy that have, has been used. And obviously that's kind of where you sit in the capital stack. You, you can modulate your the risk and return of your investment. Um, and then finally, you know, many nature-based solutions fundamentally are um, become commodities, a ton of carbon or a biodiversity benefit of some sort in a regulated biodiversity marketplace. And so with those strategies, there emerges the opportunity of trading and banking and, and other kind of forms, you know, to uh, use a word maybe that's not totally desirable, of, but speculation in, in these assets. Um, that probably doesn't have the direct impact that the former uh, opportunities do, but it is uh, just noted that there is market activity in, in that, and it's a place where, where some parties have chosen to get exposure to these assets. So, Chris and Charlotte, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity in the capital markets, whether they're the public or the private markets, and even outside of the cap, the direct capital markets, where it's government or, or not-for-profit organizations that are controlling the asset for investors to explore. Uh, Gloria, that brings me to my first question for you, and that is that every type of company that's out there today is committing to net zero emissions targets in one way or another. What are some of the conversations that you and your global colleagues are having with clients around this commitment? Uh, for example, how has Acre addressed the talent discussion with companies and clients in addition to tradition, traditional search and advisory solutions? Uh, so, Paul, that's a that's a really great question, and uh, I'll say that, uh, and I'm, I'm happy that you asked that question. I'm happy to answer that question. Across the firm, Acre is a global firm, obviously, and what we have found is that in bringing our global networks and experiences across the sustainable business, uh, sustainable energy, and sustainable finance teams, we're able to customize technical, financial strategic and communications talent gaps to really address or help organizations address their net zero pledges. We're also uh, in real time providing market insights to our clients and contacts via uh, other initiatives as, as the sustainable sustainability census that we launched back in, in March with uh, the data actually to be published at the end of June. Uh, and that really kind of brought a, a host of different insights. Uh, and as I said, they'll be published at the end of June. Also, ongoing market maps that outline industry best practices, uh, as well as preparing our firm for what's next um, with organizations uh, just uh, across across the board. Um, I would say also, uh, Acre has has basically walked the talk in two thousand in twenty twenty two. Acre was uh, had achieved the B Corp status, so I think that's another example. Just to kind of round that that question out, we're also we're also um, communicating and, and interviewing CSOs, chief carbon officers, CEOs to really help them assess the talent gaps, uh, pooling all of that kind of real time data from those conversations and, and pushing that out to our clients. We're also globally hosting convenings for clients in small and mid-sized gatherings to facilitate peer discussions on challenges 
fostering collaboration, networking for our clients to discuss really what does keep them up at night. Uh, and that's basically in addition to the search, recruitment, and talent advisory work that, that Acre does globally. Okay, great. So now back to you, Charlotte and Chris, on this next question. There's a, a new nature-based analytics framework that's going to be published in, in September of 2023 for market adoption. I'll let you name it, uh, and but its analytics process is aligned with an existing climate-based analytics framework. Uh, what should investors and asset managers expect from this more, um, it looks like it's going to be a more integrated focus on nature and biodiversity loss as sources of systemic risk alongside climate change. Uh, tell us tell us what the, the frameworks are first, and then uh, tell us why, how you think they might work together in combination, or is this uh, an experiment that, that, um, that we're not sure about yet? Maybe I can start and Chris can back me up. So you're referring to the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which yes. is, as you say, aligned to and kind of a mirror of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, yes. which was released a few years ago and has become um, the, the underpinnings of some regulatory requirements in Europe and potentially also the United States for companies to um, evaluate, measure, and disclose their business risk from climate change. So the TN, TNFD, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, is seeking to obligate uh, businesses to do the same around nature. Um, some benefits from this, if, first of all, it's really important, that old adage, what gets measured gets managed, is really true. And companies being forced to look at these risks, are, we're really seeing um, a, a behavior change coming out of that. And I think it's a big driver of all of the net zero commitments. Um, and so having a standardized approach to evaluating and disclosing biodiversity risk is really going to help you know, raise the profile of, of the systemic um, risks, as you say, um, that are driven by the biodiversity crisis. At the same time, biodiversity and nature are much more complex to measure and assess. And so I think we're going to see some bumps as this is rolled out and, and people, it's in beta testing right now. We piloted um, it with one of our platform companies and, you know, there, there are going to be some iterations, I think, yet to come. So, so I think no magic wand is getting waved in September, but at the same time, it's a very important first step. Okay, Chris? Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. I mean, I think this basic concept of, of disclosing risks to capital market participants and helping them price and avoid risks has been really a really fundamental part of, of you know developed capital markets you know for a long time. And so it's exciting to see climate and biodiversity being included in that. Um, I think it's particularly relevant given how complex these relationships are, right? It's not always apparent how, you know, a publicly traded company and technology might face water risk. You know, well, it turns out that semiconductors use a lot of water to be in the manufacturing process. And where does that water come from? Well, it comes from healthy watersheds, on and on and on, right? And so those kind of um, disclosures and connections are, are really significant, I would say. Um, you know, I would say, I would also say that, um, you know, we would, we're eager to watch how this plays out. You know, I think, um, it, you know, it would be nice to see something like this also talk about what companies should be doing versus simply disclosing these risks. And so maybe a pivot to a second framework, 
which is the science-based targets initiative, which is um, uh, another related, you know, semi-related initiative, you know, that is meant to um, help provide, gui- you know, kind of guidance and help companies make commitments to meet a 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature target uh, within their businesses. So, so it's about what you avoid, but also what you move toward, where you need to transition, energy sources, so on and so forth. And that organization recently released um, guidance for the forestry, land, and agriculture sectors that I think is really worth taking a look at. Um, there's some pretty good overview materials on the SBTI website that talk about about that. And I think it speaks to the um, kind of dual nature of these of these sectors that we're operating in, which is that they are uh, provide great opportunity for carbon removals and carbon sequestration, but are also a source of emissions in their own right, whether from deforestation, from all the diesel and kind of fossil fuel-based inputs in agriculture and so forth. And so the SBTI um, uh, framework really provides for a balanced look at both of those pieces. I think a lot of people in our industry like to focus on sequestrations and removals without kind of also considering the emissions of these sectors, which can be pretty significant. And so it's exciting to see that level of accountability being developed in that that framework, which I think has applicability both to publicly traded companies as well as private um, private market actors, private investment funds, and, and so forth. Okay, so the jury's still out, it sounds like, but uh, this is uh, probably a, a step in the right direction, at least in terms of the analytics development. So we'll look forward to your, your comments later on uh, in the future about how it's working out. And here's a question for all three of you now. Are nature-based solutions segmented by developed versus emerging economies or compliance versus voluntary markets? And how do the investment risks of nature-based solution projects differ. Who wants to go first? I, I'm happy uh, to go first. Go ahead, Chris, and I'll back. Uh, I'll I'll take okay. clean up. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, you know, in in our kind of exploration and sourcing and selection of these investments, I would say that there are meaningful differences between how these projects play out in developed markets versus emerging economies. I'd say, you know, the first thing just to to put it out there is that a lot of the regions of the planet with the highest biological growth rates, which correlate roughly to the highest levels of carbon uptake and sequestration, exist in tropical regions and subtropical regions, right? And so you're working in countries where there are different approaches to land ownership and land tenure. And in many of those regions, government owns natural resources. They're leased out in long-term concessions. It's very different framework from kind of the private property fee title ownership that you see in the United States. And I touched on that a little bit before, but I think there's sort of a trade-off between, okay, you want to be doing these projects in tropical regions, um, but the structure of how you have to do them tends to be more this project financing structure versus owning the underlying land. So I'd say that's kind of one meaningful difference where there's some correlation between regions and project types, just kind of by the nature of how governance works in those systems. Um, I think that the one interesting thing that we've watched on the second point is that you know, the compliant of you know, when you looked at these markets five to ten years ago, the compliance markets were really in the driver's seat. The California um, greenhouse gas offset market was really the largest market. Projects being developed all over the United States were feeding into that market because that's where the buyers were. Um, com- large companies had in ca- operating in California and uh, generating emissions in California had to, had the opportunity to offset or reduce emissions, and so the, the they became very large buyers of these um, offsets, and so. The, a lot of projects were formulated around those California rules, which have some meaningful differences from 
what has rapidly emerged in the voluntary markets, which I think place more of a premium on annual carbon removals um, from forest growth, that type of a thing. Whereas the California system places a little bit more uh, value and kind of you know financial value on protecting standing forests and existing carbon stocks. And so that is a subtle kind of methodological piece that is really kind of filtered into the market in terms of which projects have viability in the compliance versus voluntary markets. Of course, those markets have different pricing, different dynamics, uh, but it's something that's evolving extremely rapidly. And of course, nature-based solutions in the voluntary market are also competing with alternatives, engineered approaches, geologic storage approaches, direct air capture, and so on and so forth. Um, and different buyers have different preferences for um, for those. Charlotte? I think I'd add, yeah, great. I think that's all really well described and and I would agree with all of it. I think I would add that it's also important to think about the different kinds of nature-based solution projects because they each have a different set of risks and returns and timelines. Um, and I would I would characterize the risks in two ways. First, um, the science is pretty well developed around forest carbon sequestration. Um, and so in addition to knowing the economics of your timber investment, assuming that that's the, the kind of strategy you're pursuing, it's relatively straightforward to calculate how much carbon the project is sequestering and, and therefore how to monetize that. Other types of nature-based solutions, soil carbon sequestration, for example, or mangrove or, or seagrass, um, are less well understood scientifically. And so the risks around how much carbon you're going to be able to monetize are are greater and it's it's less well understood. Um, and then in addition, obviously, the timeline on an agriculture project versus a timber project versus a, a coastal restoration project is going to be different with different economics and different return profiles. Okay, great. So now for both of you again and Gloria, Please uh, jump in if you have something to add. How and where do nature-based solution strategies deliver benefits to local communities and business operators? Obviously, often as you've as you've all described already, there there are locations where the assets for nature-based solutions exist, and there are communities in all of those places. How are those people participating and delivering, getting benefits from these types of solutions? Maybe I'll start this one. I think this is such an important question, Paul, and I'm really glad you asked it because there is a big equity component uh, to these projects and to making sure that the beneficiaries aren't just the big corporations who are able to offset some of their emissions um, in buying these these credits or the investors who who are participating in the projects. And we see, for example, um, in the, the red plus space reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, which are really effectively paying people not to cut down trees. That there's a real opportunity to support indigenous peoples and local communities who are so often the stewards of those assets. And so I think that's a really critical piece for investors to be aware of as they're entering this space. And then certainly in the more kind of traditional natural capital sectors that Chris and I work in, timber and agriculture, there's a big employment uh, component um, and a really sort of powerful potential impact on communities of of sustainably managing these assets in a way that also supports local development. Okay. Chris? Yeah, I thought that was well, very well said. I mean, I would just to sort of underscore kind of the equity issue here. You know, there's definitely a, a, a moral piece to this, which is to say that a lot of these 
projects in some way, shape, or form are affecting local livelihoods, then maybe they're taking traditional forms of natural resource exploitation off the table um, and potentially depriving local communities of livelihoods. And so I feel a very strong obligation that these projects should involve local communities in, in making sure that we're kind of pivoting livelihoods and industries around restoring uh, ecosystems. And that, that's something that we've seen really deliver some both kind of you know, address the equity issue that Charlotte highlighted, but also I think really delivers social license to the project and kind of enhances the fundamental durability of the project, right? Like legal contracts only go so far and, and having local support for these types of projects, local involvement, local economic benefit really create sort of a natural constituency for their furtherance and expansion and, and you know, kind of long-term success. Okay. The only thing I would add is that I think as as a talent partner, uh, I, I would say across the globe, where you know we're right by the side of our clients in in helping them assess the global talent gaps that persist around around these types of strategies, while and and we're in the trenches with them, whether it's whether it's supporting from an impact investing hire to uh to supporting you know a, a portfolio company with you know with operators or um or other uh other talent needs that they might have okay thank you for adding that gloria now here's a question for all three of you what nature-based investment benefits do you see coming out of the the large intergenerational wealth transfer that's um, got about 20 years to go before it plays out officially uh, from baby boomers to millennial and Gen X investors over the next couple of decades. Is there anything related to nature-based investment benefits or solutions that is being focused on um, in this wealth transfer that you would like to comment on? Yeah, I mean, I would... I would say that maybe just zooming out from nature-based solutions to kind of impact investing at mm -hmm. large, mm -hmm. we just see kind of over and over again, wealth holders, asset owners, as that next generation transfer happens, there's just a really heightened demand for more direct, more credible, more authentic delivery of social and environmental impact, equity, uh, bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion issues into the investing space and so forth. And I think that nature-based solution investing will be a, a significant beneficiary of that. I also think that there will be a growing demand for um, sort of a further understanding kind of the attribution of benefits, which is to say that investors may see more interest and have more you know demand for um, those benefits being generated on behalf of the public good, let's say, versus being sold as offsets to corporates and, and so forth. So I think there's just going to be a much a broadening of the solution set um, as investors demand more direct impact with their dollars uh, and demand more measurement of that and verification of that. Okay. Charlotte, anything to add? Not really. I mean, I I totally agree. I'm seeing the same trends that Chris is, and we're seeing it kind of in a more integrated way um, with the the millennials and the Gen Z, um, you know, entering the workforce, buying fewer cars, seeking more meaningful jobs. And I think that's good, that we are seeing it, and we will continue to see it translate into investment strategies as as uh, th this generation inherits that wealth. Okay. Now, you know, one thing that I that that we, I didn't really have a 
prepared question for, but I want to I want to ask both of you anyway. We're currently experiencing, for example, in New York City, where Gloria works and I work as well, uh, the level of pollution this week is the highest of any city on the planet, um, air pollution. And apparently that's being caused by all of the smoke from wildfires in Canada. Uh, and so here's an, an example of how nature is participating uh, in climate change. Uh, and at the same time, when you've got in place assets like forestry or, or things like that, what's the risk to those kinds of assets over the long term related to uh, climate change? Uh, any thoughts on that or anything that you'd like to, 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 to offer as a way of uh, assurance or insurance against those type of risks? Yeah, I mean, I'll maybe I'll just jump in here. We we formed our company Alder Point Capital really on the premise that investors, al asset allocators, want protection from climate risk, and we see existing incumbent managers kind of talking about it, but maybe not really understanding or kind of fully pricing or planning for it at the at the kind of rate that it is happening. And I think one of the key takeaways from climate science is that climate science has been very good at predicting sort of. The growth of CO2 in the atmosphere, some of the you know foreseen impacts, that sort of a thing. But I think it has been tricky to predict some of the kind of thresholds that we're crossing and when we will cross them. Like yesterday, there was an article that indicates that the Arctic will be ice-free in the summer by the 2030s. Five years ago, we were talking about the Arctic being ice-free in the 2070s. Uh, the ramp up of Western and boreal wildfires is another example of that. It is not something that is happening on a linear basis. It's happening kind of a step function basis. And I think it's very hard for investors to kind of fully map out the implications of different climate stressors and how they'll affect um, biological systems, right? And I think that it, asset managers such as ourselves will be called to ever more kind of predict, understand, avoid, mitigate, manage those, those impacts on client assets. I think that's um, that's really fundamental. And like I, I read one interesting thing I'll just throw out um, this morning, which is you know, there's all these publications of kind of climate impacts on the economy, climate damages to the economy. And it turns out that wildfire impacts, the, the, the kind of what is the economic impact of all of New York City, all of the Eastern Seaboard staying inside for three days, health impacts, not going outside, not doing business outside. That's not even priced in. That was not even something that was factored into most of the mainstream climate economic modeling as of today. Like that's just not a thing that has even been anticipated. And so the point I'm making is that things are gonna happen that investors may not be prepared for. And I think it's really incumbent on asset managers whose full-time job it is to manage these risks to um, to really pay attention to them and, and, and help investors kind of steer around them. Okay. Try yeah, anything. I mean, not much to add except that we are, I mean, I think, the the global COVID-19 pandemic gave us a preview of a reality that heretofore we had not been able to accept, which is that everything can completely change in a very short period of time. And we're going to witness that um, as, as the impacts of climate change are, are increasingly and more rapidly felt. Um, in the last IPCC report, the Western forests, which is where I live and Chris lives, um, are a source of carbon now and not a sink because of increased frequency and intensity of forest fires. Um, and so, yeah, I think to echo Chris, it's incumbent upon us asset managers to 
really start to anticipate and price in those risks and and be th- those kind of shift changes are are going to increase um and and we need to be ready for them okay great uh, gloria anything you want to add from the talent search and placement perspective uh, around this issue well i i you know i appreciate the the you know the the comments that you both made on this because experiencing it firsthand here in 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 New York uh, I would say I, I think this unfortunately adds to some of the the challenges that that our clients are seeing getting people back to the office and Charlotte you brought up a really great point right that that the global pandemic really you know changed the conversation so this you know this is just one of those one of those events just not factored in to uh, you know, further challenges of, of bringing people back, back to the office. Okay. All right. Well, Gloria, Charlotte, and Chris, tell our listeners where online they can learn more about Acre, BTG Pactual, and Alderpoint Capital Management, and how can they get in touch with you regarding questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's program? Chris, I'll let you start. Great. Yeah, we have a website at uh, alderpoint.com, A-L-D-E-R-P-O-I-N-T.com. And please follow us on LinkedIn for updates uh, as we grow the firm. Terrific. Yeah, similarly, we have a website at timberlandinvestmentgroup.com. And you can find us on LinkedIn at BTG Pactual Timberland Investment Group. Thank you. That's great. And and uh, uh, acre.com, uh, please follow us as well on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and we'll be publishing the sustainability census uh, insights very shortly. So thank you, Paul. Thank you for today. Well, well, thank you all very much. Gloria Mirioni, Charlotte Kaiser, and Chris Larson. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 